I believe that back in September when I was here, I indicated that I felt there was probably no better place to begin looking at the life and ministry of the church than the magnificent book of Ephesians, a book so lovely and compact, so beautiful and small, that it has been called the Switzerland of the New Testament. And so we begin this morning with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And what we have here is an avalanche. It's a cascade of holy joy pouring out of the Apostle Paul, where he seems to be in some kind of struggle to find the language adequate to the grandeur of his theme. And by the time he stops here, we're left with one long sentence. Verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the original language. 202 words long. And one has to wonder if anyone in any language has ever penned a sentence as content-rich as this one. This text is like crisp, fresh, high mountain air breathed in by us on some panoramic summit. It ought to make us realize that our own vision is too confined, too confined to the often petty, murky, self-constrained lowlands of our own little existence. There are, we should notice in this text, there are no imperatives in the text. The text does not ask you to do anything. There are no commands. No prescriptions. Nothing, the Apostle asks. Yet it would be folly, and folly of the highest order, to assume that that means that this text is somehow impractical. That it's just a piece of highfalutin theology which doesn't touch down in our lives. For the scriptures everywhere assert, and Paul certainly believes, that high theology is highly practical. This is one of the most profound convictions of the whole Reformed tradition. High theology is highly practical. This is a text, then, which undergirds our wanting to do anything at all. It's a text which makes all of our doing possible. It's a text which points to the reality which is to infuse all of our doing with light, with grace, and with gladness. Because here, we are vividly reminded that it is the triune God who having lavished grace, vast 
unmeasured, boundless, free grace on us in Christ. That God has become our chief delight and our highest good. Simple enough to say, but the actual measure of it as a living, breathing, vital reality is the measure of a community's health. Sometimes when someone starts a new pastorate, they're asked about their vision. They're asked about their plan. They're asked about what they see in five years or this or that or the other thing. And generally I say this, my vision is the Holy Trinity. It's rather simple, but the church is obsessed with one thing, God. The church has one doctrine, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Everything else is a footnote to that. One great preoccupation of the church is the triune God who has revealed himself in Christ. And yet, we have a way of perpetually forgetting this. So I wanted to proclaim this text at the outset because it confronts us with what is for the church always and everywhere the very first thing. So we'll make four points. Four points. The blessing, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The blessing, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. First then, the blessing. The apostle starts here in verse 3 in very Jewish fashion by pronouncing a benediction, a blessing upon God the Father. Blessed be or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, at the outset, we're reminded of a crucial feature of this text, which is easy to lose sight of as we proceed. This passage is, for all of its dense theological content, and it is dense, but it is first and foremost an exuberant, lyrical ode of praise. It's an act of blessing. It's an act of worship. Blessed be, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how the Apostle, inspired by the Spirit, blesses the name of God. And this is perhaps the richest blessing of the name of God ever uttered. And surely, one of the practical ends to which this text is designed is to teach us to learn to bless God in a manner that accords with His majesty. And so the text then has to be approached all the way to the end with a spirit of praise. The Father has blessed us in Christ. All of our blessedness, not some of it, is in Jesus Christ. Paul will use phrases like in Christ or in Him some 11 or 12 times in this text. And this means that Jesus Christ is the the sphere. He's the very place. He's the address. The location of our blessedness. 
We keep trying to find it elsewhere, but He is the location. And the text locates all of our blessings then in the heavenly places because Christ has been raised and He's been seated in the heavenly places and you are in Him and thus you too have been raised and are seated with Him in the heavenly places. And so the text starts at the beginning and says you are presently now the possessors of all spiritual blessedness in Jesus Christ. And the blessings are called spiritual blessings not because they're immaterial, as we'll see, many of them are quite material. They're spiritual blessings because they come to us through, they're mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. And so already in this opening verse, we see the Trinitarian shape of our faith and worship. The Father blesses us in the Son through the Spirit. Notice also, what Paul does here. He starts with our present experience, the church's present actual experience, our abundant blessedness in Christ. And this is what calls forth Paul's blessing upon the name of God. And so all of our worship, all of our blessing of God is reflexive. We bless because we've been blessed. And if we lose sight of this, the infinite richness of our blessedness in Christ, we will lose our fire to bless the name of God. And so consider this text then kindling to ignite a life of praise to the triune God. The second point here is the Father. The Father. And of course, this is a well-known text. What Paul does next is he traces the origin of our current blessedness back. He traces it back to its roots in the eternal counsel of God. And so here we come into the precincts of what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls the high mystery. The high mystery of predestination. The same Westminster Confession goes on to warn us. It says that we must handle this doctrine with great prudence and care. And in order to do this, Calvin tells us there are two extremes to be avoided when it comes to predestination. One is immoderate, he calls it immoderate curiosity. An undue, overly curious attitude about it. A desire to turn predestination into a kind of philosophical plaything. A propensity when faced with this doctrine to raise questions which God has not seen fit to answer or to address. St. Augustine has a wonderful saying on this. He says, when it comes to predestination, we need a certain learned ignorance. We need to know when to stop. The second extreme to be avoided here is neglect. There's immoderate curiosity, trying to pry into the thing. And then there's just neglect. And neglect, of course, can seem quite pious. After all, it's complicated and good Christians disagree about it. Therefore, it's best simply to ignore it or marginalize it. So here, the advice of Deuteronomy 29 is again most appropriate. The things that are revealed, they are for us. And for our children, 
The things which are secret, they belong to the Lord. We have to attend carefully to what God has revealed and leave the secrets in His good and gracious hands. So the text continues. We are blessed in Christ because, as verse 4 tells us, He, the Father, chose us, elected us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Our election takes place in Christ. He is the bright mirror of our election. He's the elect one par excellence in whom we have been united in the plan of God from all eternity. It is not because we chose Christ, but because God chose us in Him that we stand this very hour as the children of God. And the result is, the result of this, Calvin puts this way. He says, we shall never feel persuaded as we ought that our salvation flows from the fountain of God's free mercy until we are acquainted with His eternal election. We can talk about grace and mercy all we like, but unless we trace the river of God's grace back to the sea of His sovereign election, we're not going to assess our salvation rightly. And in this text, that's just what Paul's doing. He's tracing the river back to the source for us. Now here, I want to stop and note something. And I think it's important. Election is, for the apostle, pure joy. Pure, unalloyed joy. He has absolutely no angst about it. There's no dark underside to this in Paul's mind. You know, no, no yinning and yang. No clinging shadows. No God who's holding a daisy saying, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not. What about this? What about that? What about free will? What about those who aren't chosen? It's pure joy for the apostle. There are no shadows that cling to it. It's situated in a celebration, a blessing, a doxology, a praising of the name of the triune God. We get all tangled up with this because we don't allow texts like this to shape the way we hold a doctrine. Now, Paul's aware, of course, that the doctrine scandalizes some people. You can see that in Romans 9. He's aware that it makes some people very angry and, frankly, irrational. But if you'll indulge just one more reference to Calvin, I think Paul would agree with him when he says this. To assail this doctrine, to assail this doctrine is to pluck up humility by its very roots. Predestination is about humility. And it's one of the saddest things, I think, one of the things which disfigures the witness of our tradition the most that men who profess this doctrine can be so harsh and so arrogant and so condescending and unkind to those who do not embrace it. This doctrine is to produce in us what it produces here in Paul. Namely, childlike humility and wonder that calls forth a benediction upon the name of the Father. 
And the goal of this election we can see at the end of verse 4 is that we should be holy and blameless in His sight. Election is about and unto holiness. Holiness can never be the cause of it. Holiness is the goal of it. The goal of the grace of election is a holy and blameless life. And so any understanding of this doctrine, which shirks the call to Christian discipleship, is a, is a caricature, it's a grotesque distortion of free election. And the corollary to election, you can't discuss one without the other, is predestination. And much to our surprise, we find that here, predestination is for the apostle a warm, familial doctrine. I wonder how many people would find it that way from the way we present it to them. But when Paul talks about predestination, it's warm, it's familial, it flows from the unfathomable love of the Father. In love, the text says, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Predestination is joy because its immediate end is our adoption into the family of God. You can't have the doctrine of adoption the free grace of God which makes us children of God without the eternal predestinating God. There's a wonderful story I read recently about a young mother who was visiting her parents after the birth of her first child. And she remarks to her mother that, that it's odd that her child, her little baby, had dark hair since both she and her husband were fair. And her mother says to her, well, your father has, has dark hair. To which the young mother says, but that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. And then her mother, the older mother, smiled and, and said what the younger mother called the most wonderful word she'd ever heard. The older mother said, oh yeah, I always forget. <laughs> See, adopted children have all the rights they have all the privileges of natural-born children. And you now share in all the rights, in all the privilege, in the love and the affection and the approval of the Father that he who is a son by nature has. All of this, Paul says, was according to his pleasure and will. And he uses these words, words like counsel or plan or will, throughout the passage. The eternal will of God, His sheer delight and nothing else, is the ground of our election, of our being predestined, and thus of our being children, adopted children of God. All of this, in verse 6, is to the praise of His glorious grace. Grace which He has given us in Christ the Beloved. Again, note, predestination is unto praise. To the praise of His glorious grace. Grace which flows from and reflects the glory of the triune God. His radiance. His luminosity. His sovereign freedom. His fatherly love and beneficence. The extolling, the blessing, 
The magnifying of this grace is the church's reason for being. The church can be and do a lot of things, but if this is not the central nerve, the central axis of her life, then she is skewed from her calling. This is the central theme of the church's life and mission, the extolling of this grace, of this God revealed in this Christ. We cannot bypass this text. We cannot skip ahead to the allegedly practical parts of the book of Ephesians. Because this is not a mere preliminary. We are summoned here to be first and ever and always a people who bless the sovereign electing God for the glory of His grace in Christ. And the third point then, our next point is the Son. Because in verse 7 the text shifts, shifts to the redemption wrought for us by Christ. This redemption, this liberation from bondage consists, the text says, in the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of God's grace. The forgiveness of sins is the lifeblood of the church. Our Lord taught us to pray for it daily in the Lord's Prayer. The church confesses it and practices it weekly, even if the minister starts reading the wrong prayer at the the time of the confession of sins. Our poverty is great. And when we forget that, this whole passage ceases to resonate the way it should in the depths of our being. Misery, then grace, then gratitude. But notice, our need for the forgiveness of sins, our perpetual need for it, our hourly need for it, is more than fully answered here by the riches of God's grace. The text says that this grace was lavished on us. God is no miser. The grace of God with which we have been blessed in Christ is extravagant grace. And that means that our blessing of the name of God should echo that extravagant we sh- extravagance. We should reflect that extravagance back to God in our praise and in our blessing. And in lavishing and pouring out this grace on us, the text continues and tells us that God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose or His good pleasure which He set forth in Christ. And in beginning here in verse 10, you get a glimpse of what this purpose of God is. God's plan, God's plan which is for the fullness of time, is the text says to unite or to sum up all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is a breathtaking statement in a breathtaking passage. And it is acknowledged by almost all scholars to be the central hinge of verses 3-14. through Paul says that the purpose of God is comprehensive and cosmic. God desires the reintegration, the healing unity of all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible. The text then envisions the sovereign, electing, predestinating, gracious God, renewing, reconciling the whole cosmos. And it sees that cosmos united and at peace under the headship of Christ. Nothing less than this is the mystery of God's will revealed in Christ. 
Predestination is unto a reconciled cosmos. Now, I know what happens when we confront a text like this, especially verses like verses 9 and 10. Namely, our eyes glaze over. At least a lot of folks' eyes glaze over. Because this can seem so unreal and distant and so far removed from the reality and the grind of our daily existence. All of this cosmic reconciliation stuff and this plan to unite everything in heaven and earth. True enough, I understand it. But, but that's precisely why we need to open the windows of our souls and breathe in this high mountain air. We don't normally take it in any place. And it's important for us to remember here, we do not get to define what's real or unreal, what's relevant or irrelevant. It's right here that we assert that high theology is highly practical. Paul, you will recall, is under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard as he writes this. He certainly doesn't think this is irrelevant, highfalutin stuff. Verses 9 and 10 here are the magnificent centerpiece of this most magnificent text. If they don't move us, we should ask ourselves why. The goal of election in eternity past, of your adoption, of your redemption, possessed now, is the future healing of the nations, the, the actual transforming, the transfiguration of the whole groaning creation. Nothing is left untouched by this God and His grace in Jesus Christ. Our fourth and final point is the Spirit. And what Paul's doing here toward the end of our passage is he's beginning to show a little more specifically how this plan for reconciliation begins to take shape in the church through the ministry of the Spirit. Notice the pronouns starting in verse 11. In verse 11 and verse 12, it's we. We have obtained, an, we've been chosen or we've obtained an inheritance so that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. Here Paul's referring to himself and to the first people to receive the gospel. That is, he's referring to the Jews. The we, in verse 11 and 12, is we Jews. And then there's a shift. You can see it there in verse 13. In him you, when you heard the word of truth, he shifts to the Gentiles. The you Gentiles. What does this mean? It means that this cosmic reconciliation that Paul's talking about has begun when we Gentiles separated from the commonwealth of Israel, have been grafted into it in the body of Jesus Christ. This is why the life of the church is so important. She's the harbinger. She's the sacrament. She's the foretaste, the sign of the reconciled cosmos that God wants. This is why our interpersonal relationships, our love and service, our prayer for one another, are of monumental significance. This happened, Paul says in verse 13, when we heard the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed it. Notice, nothing about election and predestination undermines the need to zealously proclaim and believe the gospel. Quite the contrary. It is, it is the action of this triune God in Jesus. It is the action of this God who says, I'm summing up 
reintegrating, restoring, healing, all things under the headship of Christ. That is what thrusts us out into the missionary work of the church with confidence and with joy. When we believe this gospel, the text says, we were sealed, branded, marked with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit who spoke through the prophets and whom Jesus promised to send. The Spirit unites us to Christ and brings to pass the realization of these benefits in our lives. He is, as verse 14 tells us, the guarantee of our inheritance. Notice the hour in verse 14. Now Paul has Jews and Gentiles in view. How do we come into the possession of this blessedness? Through the Spirit who's a deposit, a pledge, earnest money of our future redemption when all things will be summed up and reconciled in Christ. That's Paul's opening salvo in the book of Ephesians. What shall we say to these things? I can tell you that I certainly know that what I've tried to say falls far short of the passage. Nevertheless, it is my hope that we see this text as having a foundational shaping character for the whole of our life together as the church. I think it has in Westminster's history, and it is always good to be stirred up by way of reminder. Right? This is the very heart of a robustly God-intoxicated vision. A Trinitarian vision. This is what it means to be genuinely reformed, exhilarated, and humbled by the free grace of God. Indeed, the blessing of God in this manner is what it means to be the church, the reconciled community. And so what we have here is a, a, a blueprint, if you will, a, an example of what it means to be the people who are on the receiving end of this blessedness. A worshiping community. A people who, in imitation of this whole single-sentenced wildfire of a text, a people who praise and bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen.